This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So, I'd like to talk to the women first, for a moment. I spoke last night in the Great Synagogue. I know that some of them were there. But I think it's a very beautiful, very beautiful pshat, a very important pshat about the Nashim Sikhaniyah. As we know, the Gemara says that the Nashim Sikhaniyah took us out of Golis Mitzrayim, and the Nashim Sikhaniyah are going to take us out of out of this terrible Golis that we're in. And I never understood, really, because I say this in many men's yeshivas and many boys' yeshivas, and to many of my Talmidim, and for some reason they never complain. And, I, you know, it, it doesn't say that the Daf Yaimi, Rosh Yeshivas, all of us, we're sitting, we're learning, we're shtaiging, we go to Minyan three times a day, at least most of us, right? We put on tefillin, at least most of us. Um, we wear tzitzit, at least most of us, right? So, so we, we try very hard, we work very, very hard. And, and the Gemara comes and says that my sister, she's going to bring Mashiach, my mother, my aunt, they're going to bring Mashiach? And how come guys don't get insulted? Come on, Rabbi Wallace, do you know how hard we're working? And, and they're going to bring Mashiach? So one day I asked one of the boys, I said like, you know, you guys, you know, you guys walk around like you don't want to give anyone credit, and we're giving your sister credit for bringing Mashiach, and it doesn't bother you. Why doesn't it bother you? So he looked at me and he said, "Rebbe, Mashiach here?" I'm like, "No, of course it's their fault." <laughs> that that started a long time ago with Adam and Chava, and I'm married a while; it hasn't stopped. I promise you. So we blame them for everything. But Lamaisa, it's very interesting. In this past week's Pasha, in Pasha's B'Shalach, so it says, V'atikach Miriam HaNaviyah Chois Aaron Asatof B'Yodo, she took drums, B'tipotupim, and B'chaylois, and they had all these, they had, the women had all these musical instruments. And then it says, very interesting Lashem, V'ata'an Lohem Miriam. Shiru L'Hashem Kigoygot Sosroch Marom Yom. What do you mean, V'ata'an Lohem Miriam? It should say, Miriam sang Shira. What's V'ata'an? She, it's, an, it's like an answer. What does that mean? What was this answer? What's, what's this lushan of Bata'an Lehem Miriam? I'm sure it bothered everyone. They probably didn't sleep till today. Um, but it's a, it's a very modern lushan. What's the lushan? It's a beautiful terrace. This is for the lushan Tzidkaniyais. Miriam was saying like this. You, Moshe Rabbeinu and Klai Yisrael, Oz Yashir, Oz... Now, right now, after the Yam split, oh, now you sang Shira. So what was the level of your Amuna? The level of your Amuna was that there's a miracle, and right after there's a miracle, you sing Shira. Very nice. You appreciate it. If you would have sang Shira, right, it's a big thing, don't get me wrong, it's very big. But to Aunt Miriam, Miriam answered to Moshe and Yisrael, we sang Shira way before the miracle happened. Why don't they have musical instruments? Where did they get musical instruments from? Not to say they went and asked the men, can I borrow a drum, can I borrow a guitar, can I borrow, can I borrow a musical instrument? It says that they took it, she had it, she took it. Where'd she take it from? And the Teretz is that the women who left Mitzrayim knew, had a muna, that at some point we're going to need these instruments. So instead of going for money and for dresses and for jewelry and for other things, while Klyasrol was collecting all the money, Moshe Rabbeinu was collecting Atzvah Yosef, the women of Klyasrol went around getting musical instruments. And it must have been very strange. You're leaving with Triumph. Mommy, you're leaving with Triumph with a guitar, with a harp, with a drum. What's going on over here? 
And the chinuch was, they didn't tell their children, we're going to use these instruments. Because one day, you're not going to see Mitzrayim anymore, and we're going to have to sing Shira. Bata'an, lahem Miriam. And Miriam answered and said, we, the women, have a right to sing our own Shira. Because we had a Muna way before Oz Yashir, after the, the Yamsuf was split. And those were the Nashim Tzikonios, all together in Mitzrayim. And the, the head of this was Miriam. Why Miriam? Because Miriam was the one that went to Yecheved, right, and to Amram and said, why are, you being, why are you separating? You're separating. You're worse than Paro. You have children. It's not your problem. It's Hashem's problem. And in the end, they didn't have a girl. They had a boy. And who was the boy? Miriam was the spitz. She was the head of a person who had a Muna. She also watched her brother. I saw an unbelievable medrash. What's so, what's so great that she watched Moshe Rabbeinu? Any sister, right? She didn't save his life. She watched to see what would happen. Why is it such a big thing that later on, the whole Kala waited for Miriam because she waited to see what would happen? What's the big deal? She didn't save Moshe Rabbeinu. And the medrash says that she did save Moshe Rabbeinu's life. Why? Had she done what her mother said to do and just put... Moshe in, in the, in the, in the, uh, watch, put him in the, in the river, in the Nile River, and left. So when Batya found him, she tried to nurse him. Then she gave him to the other Goyim to nurse him. He wouldn't nurse. Had she not been there, they would have never known that the problem was because it wasn't a Jew. So they would have taken her back, back, him back to the palace, this little baby, and tried to nurse him, and tried to nurse him, and tried to nurse him. He would have seemed to have been sick because he wouldn't nurse, he wouldn't nurse. And in the end, he would starve to death. So because Miriam was there and she took the extra step, she was there to tell Batya Basparo, don't even try. Forget about it. Because he won't eat from a mitzri. So she actually saved his life because then he was nursed by his mother. It's very, also very, very interesting just to, the, the strictness of, of the kedusha of a person. Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was a baby, you all know that he, he, they, they did the things with the coal and the gold and the malach made him take from the coal and put it in his mouth. And the question is, what put into Paro's head that they should put coals over there in gold? They could have put gold and marbles. As long as he doesn't go for the crown, that means he doesn't want the malchus. Why hot coals? Why would they put in front of a baby hot coals? Put a, put a ball. Put marbles. Put candy. As long as... What was the thing with the hot coals? So the medrash says that because one drop of trefa milk when Batya tried to nurse him fell onto his tongue HaKadosh Baruch who said that a tongue that has one drop of non-kosher milk on it can never talk to me pe o pe. cannot be the one that gives over the Torah so HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to burn the one place in his tongue where that drop fell had to be totally burnt out of his tongue so that he'd be able to talk to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The power of treif, the power of something that isn't kosher, going into your mouth, and that mouth wants to talk Torah to its Chavrusa, and that mouth wants to dive into HaKadosh Baruch Hu. you need to know how makpid HaKadosh Baruch Hu was, that he put in Paro's mind to put a coal, you think Hashem just wants to burn Moshe Rabbeinu's mouth, HaKadosh Baruch Hu to burn a little baby's mouth, but the part of the, where the milk touched had to be totally kashered and burnt out. That's how mocked we have to be. And, how, and, what, and last year I spoke about what, you have to, what, what a person looks at, how it affects what a person looks at. Because whatever you look at, you can't, it goes in. There's a, there's, a, there's a whole Zoyar that talks about the human body. And the Zoyar says 
that, that the head of a person is called the shamayim of the person. And the aretz of the person is from your shoulders down. How do we know this? Because it says in the Pasuk by creation that aretz tatse desha, from the land will come out, will come out uh, grass, foliage. So the land gives out. So the bottom of your body gives out. The waste of your body goes out. The top of your body takes in. Shemayim takes in and aretz gives out. So your eyes, which is the highest part of your shemayim, it's the highest aver in, in your head, the hardest, highest part of your shemayim, that's the kisya kavod. That's the, that's the top, right? So your eyes can't give out. Your eyes don't give out anything. Your eyes only take in. Your nose is the same thing. Your nose, you breathe in through your nose. It smells besamim. It takes in. Your ears, which is above your nose, also takes in. Those are all the parts of Shemayim. Your mouth is the bridge. Your mouth does both things. It takes in and it gives out. Right? Words come out and food goes in. Your Shemayim, your, your mouth actually flips it. Why? Because what, what comes out of your mouth? Shemayim, words. Ruchnius. What goes into your mouth? Gashmius. So this is a bridge, sort of like the way the Zayah says it, with two lanes. Now, it's very fascinating. Why did Klai Yisrael sing Shira? So, Mitzrayim is called the Meitzar. Meitzar means narrow. The narrowest part of your body, between your head and, your, and your, the rest of your body, is your neck. That's called the Meitzar. Mitzrayim, the Zayah says, Mitzrayim, the Meitzar, wanted to, to cut separate Klai Yisrael Shamayim Aruchnius and Agashmius. And that's why he says that Shechita, when you shecht an animal, right, and you're separating its Shamayim, its head, and its Oretz, that can, you cannot, that's pure, that's death. Separating Shamayim by Oretz is death. A person who gets shechted, there's nothing you can do. You can't, you, he cannot live. He's dead on the spot. He cannot live. Mitzrayim, Meitzar, what they wanted to do was to separate our head Aruchnius from Argashmius. What was the Midah Kineged Midah? When Mitzrayim was destroyed, how did we thank Hashem? We thanked Hashem from our Meitzar. Where do you sing Shira from? You sing, you sing Shira from your mouth, from your throat, actually. That is, that is your Meitzar. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Klai Yisrael, Moshe Rabbeinu, and, and Klai Yisrael, we are revenge. So they wanted to take out our Meitzar. They wanted to take out our neck. They wanted to take out our voice box. In turn... They were destroyed, and we sang Shira to HaKadosh Baruch And who sang Shira even on a higher level? Miriam, who sang Shira through music. What did she say? What did she say? What was the Shira that she picked? Sus v'rochmoi ramabayam. That doesn't sound like Hashem Ishmochama, Hashem Shemo. Why would she pick that? Of all things, that a horse and its rider were drowned in the water. And the answer is, that what she was trying to tell the other women is that the greatest shira for a woman is that she, she is considered the sus. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we are considered the rochbo. But what's, what's, the, what's the lesson of this? So if you studied ancient warfare, you'll know that when they used to go to war, the horses, right, and the soldiers, so the soldiers used to have a lot of armor on them. And the archers... They used to shoot arrows, and it would bounce off. They'd have shields, and they'd have a lot of armor. So they stopped shooting for the soldier. They used to shoot the horse. You kill the horse, just like Eliezer did in the war against the Greeks. He killed the elephant, 
and the elephant comes down and everybody on top of it comes down. So instead of shooting, which is a much smaller target, the man on top of the horse, you shoot the horse. Once you hit the horse and the horse goes down, it throws the rider. The rider's laying on the floor. He's much easier to kill. But if you shoot the rider, the horse doesn't go down. If you shoot the horse, they both go down. Sus v'roch by Ramalayam. So what she was telling to the women is, if we go down, the whole Klai Yisrael goes down. We're the Rachbo. We're the Sus. Sus for Rachboy. The Sus goes down, the Rachboy goes down. If the Rachbo goes down, not necessarily does the Sus go down. So I'm opening up talking to the Nashim Tzidkaniyais, whose husbands are learning Torah. They need to know that they're the Ikeras Habayas. And that even if their husband is shaky and he's struggling, but if you're strong, if you're strong, the family remains. Because even if the husband is shaky, the wife, the, the horse is strong, then the horse remains and the family remains. And the Sahara today is going after the women, sometimes more than the men. Because the Icaris Habayas goes down, the husband goes down, and the children go down. The husband goes down, Usually, the children, as long as the wife is still doing what she's supposed to, the children don't go down. So I just want to open up talking to them that you need to know that this shira that Miriam sang was very, very important. But Ta'an, her answer was, we have more imuna than the men. And she told them, you need to remember that they could shoot the man off the horse. But if they shoot the man off the horse, the horse keeps going. If they shoot the horse, if the woman goes down, if she's on Facebook, if she's in the wrong places... If she's looking at the wrong things, if she's not giving her children time because she's busy on the phone and in other places, then the whole family goes down. The horse goes down, the rider goes down, and the whole army goes down. Because if every rider goes down, there's no army left. She's the Ikeros Habayas. That's it. No more Musa for them. <laughs> the next hour is for you guys. Just want to get that out of the way. Okay, so some of you know me, most of you don't. So I want to tell you a little bit about myself because it's just interesting. A lot of guys come over to me like, Rabbi Wallstein, um, so, so how do you do what you do? Like, I want to do what you do. So I'm like, what does that mean you want to do? You want to talk like 2,000 girls? Is that what you want to do? Like, what, what does that mean? What part of what I do do you want to do? Right? So, no, really, really. Well, I, I, you know, I want to go into, I want to go into Chinuch and I... And I, and, I, and I want to teach, and I want to create places for kids, and I, I want to do what you do. So, so you know, you're, you're my Rebbe. How do you do it? So I'm going to tell you today how to do it. And every single person, there's, there, there's, one, there's one main midah, which has a lot to do with Tu Bishvat, which is why I'm going to speak about it today. So I grew up in Muncie, New York. I told you that last time. I, I don't know if you remember last year's story in... 10th grade when I got into trouble, but, um, and I said I got thrown out in third grade, and Rosh Hashiva said he got thrown out in kindergarten, and I've been jealous ever since then. <laughs> Telling my grandchildren, can you please get kicked out in kindergarten so I can say I have a grandchild that's going to be a Rosh Hashiva, right? So, where's really there's, there's a rumor that he got thrown out in nursery, Rosh Hashiva. It might be a Gadol Hadar. This might be a Gadol Hadar. Well, I don't think so, right? Yeah. 
And then he clapped for me when I got thrown out of school. Okay, anyway. So, so let me just tell you a little bit. I was, I was, born, I was born a little bit different. Um, I was actually a breach. I don't know if you know what that means. But I, was, I started off sideways and they had to turn me around. And um, from that point on, I was a little bit sideways. And growing up in, in those days, you're talking about uh, 50 years ago. I was six years old at the time. So we went, I went to uh, kinder... <laughs> you see, this is not L.A., Rosh Hashiva. I said this in L.A., but it was a girls' school, and they were screaming out, you don't look like you're more than 35. Right? And I'm like, I will come back here every week to give you a schmooze. So, no problem. One guy in the back's like, 56? He looks like he's 70. Okay, thank you. It's a tough yeshiva. This place is tough. Okay. But anyway, so, so, so I, was, I was in kindergarten, and I wasn't thrown out. And I used to color. It's very interesting. I used to color outside the lines in the, in the crayon book. Now, I don't mean inside the line and over the line. I mean not inside the line at all. Just outside the line. And at that time, there were no therapists. So, Baruch Hashem, they didn't you know, send me out of the room every five minutes. But they thought there was definitely something wrong with me, and there was a whisper that I was dyslexic. Um, but at that time, they didn't even know how to spell that word, so it wasn't really, <laughs> wasn't really that much of a problem. So, so I used to, the, the teacher put me in the corner a little bit different. She didn't want the whole class drawing outside of the lines. And I remember in my head a little bit that, I, you know, anybody could draw inside the lines, big deal. You know, I could draw outside the lines. So... So kindergarten and P1A, they had a little bit of a watch on this kid, Wallerstein. We know there's something wrong, but we don't know what it is. Okay. So I came to first grade, and um, I had this teacher. I, I don't know if she was really so mean, but you're a first grader, you're a little teeny guy, and everyone's really pretty mean. But I do know that she didn't have a car. She used to park her broom, okay? <laughs> so she was this mean-looking teacher, and... My name is Wallerstein, which starts with a W. My best friend, I believe he lives here in Eretz His name was Yankel Kaufman, which starts with a K. Now, anyone in Yeshiva knows that the worst, the worst last name you can have is somewhere from R down to Z. Because every month, your Rebbe would make a Siyam, and by the time they got to the R's and the W's, they're like, oh, we ran out of cups, we ran out of plates, we ran out of potato chips, we ran out of ice cream. Until they got to R, everybody had, but they, they never bought enough. If your name was Z, it was better not to come to school altogether. Right? But, so, so that was a bad part. W was miserable. Never got any food. But it was very good, in a way, because when kids got in trouble for not doing their homework, by the time they got to W, you already had all the excuses that didn't work. So there's always, in everything since the Eitz Hadass, there's good and there's bad. So this teacher gave us homework. I re- you, want, you know how many years ago this was? And I remember the homework, because it was a spelling paper, and you had to fold... I don't know if they do this in England, but in America, you have to fold the paper in three. And then you have your spelling words on three columns. I remember this from first grade. So it was some kind of word that we had to spell, whatever it was. And she gave it to us for homework. So, of course, I did not do my homework. And I was still coloring outside the lines. And Yankel Kaufman did not do his homework. So she was a pretty mean, pretty mean teacher because she never called us by our first name. She would call us Mr. Can you imagine in first grade? So she said, Mr. Kaufman, please bring up your homework. And then my poor little friend went up there, and he had nothing in his hands. And she said, Mr. Kaufman, you forgot your homework. And he said, no, I, I promised. I, I, I did it. I promised I did it. He didn't say I promised. He said, I promised. Right? I, I promised I did it. Mr. Kaufman, if you did your homework, please hand it in. But you see, I, I, I didn't say you see. I, I, I put it. 
I, I put it on my desk, and, and my cat, he ate my homework. <laughs> and she looked at him, not, we didn't know she had teeth till eight months into school. Okay? <laughs> the woman never, ever smiled, ever, ever. Okay? And how did we find out after eight months that she had teeth? She put them in a cup. <laughs> Don't laugh, I'm getting close to that age, okay? <laughs> anyway, so she says, the cat story with the homework, Mr. Kaufman, I'm teaching 22 years. That is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> and we all started clapping because we didn't know what ridiculous meant. We thought ridiculous meant that it was a good thing that he did, right? And she sternly looked at him and said, tomorrow you'll bring that back. I want it done on both sides, signed by both your parents. Now sit down. I'm like, oh my goodness. I don't have my homework. So I had time, and of course my brain was a little out of the box, and HaKadosh Baruch has been with me. I love you, Hashem. HaKadosh Baruch has been with me since I'm a little teeny boy. Actually, he revealed himself. Since I'm a little teeny boy, he's always with everybody since he's a little teeny boy. Anyway, so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, okay, I got it. I know exactly what I'm going to tell her. So she calls me up, Mr. Wallstein, please come up here. Where's your homework? And I'm standing in front of her. I'm like, I did it. She goes, so where is it? I'm like, my homework ate my hamster. (laughs) Now, what I wanted to say was that my hamster ate my homework. But Hashem may come out of my mouth. I'm serious, right? I panicked. I panicked. My first public speaking engagement, right? So I panicked, and I didn't say my hamster ate my homework. I said my homework ate my hamster. But now the kind of guy that I am, and this is what we're going to talk about how to go into Chinuch, I wasn't backing down. So she said, you mean to say, Mr. Wallstein, that your hamster ate your homework? And I'm like, no. <laughs> my homework my hamster. And then I said, and I can prove it. And she sat there and she said, this is ridiculous. I said, no, I can prove it. She said, how? I said, I have a note from my father. And she's thinking, this kid is delusional. His father is dysfunctional. Right? Forget about it. And I whip out this note. I have a note. I have a note. And I give her the note. And she, I remember it like today. And she, she folds it, she opens it up, and she reads it to the class. Please excuse my name at that time was Stevie. Please excuse Stephen Wallerstein for being late. Signed by my father. <laughs> so she says, Mr. Wallerstein, this is a late note. I'm like, that's right. Do you know why I'm late? <laughs> You didn't hear yet the answer. Wait. She goes, no, why are you late? I said, because we had to make a Leviah. First grader. First grader. So she made the biggest mistake of her life. She looked at me and she said, you have an imagination I have never come across. I don't want to, and she used the word squash or squelch. I don't, I don't remember what she said, but it didn't make any sense to me. I'm just like, where are you going with this, right? And she goes, 
you're excused. Sit down, you're excused. And I'm like, yes! <laughs> and I, I walk by Kaufman, I'm trying to find him since then to ask him a chila, and I remember kicking him and saying, stupid, it's not a cat, it's a hamster. <laughs> so I learned at a very young age that a good story will get you out of trouble. So then I went to third grade. Now, in third grade, this is really important. I just wanted to get an idea of where I was coming from. So I, I was the kind of kid that was always dreaming and playing hockey on my desk with Cheerios and all kinds of crazy stuff. And in Yeshiva Spring Valley, at, at a quarter to 12 was recess, and me and Kaufman went into the woods because at that time there was a lot of forest, there was a lot of woods, and we decided to go into the woods during recess. Came 12 o'clock, the bell rang, we didn't hear it, we didn't hear it, we did hear it, we didn't care. We didn't come back to school. By 12.05, the teacher's like, we're missing. They look in the dining room. We're little kids. They're looking all over the place. They can't find us. By 12.15, they're outside screaming our names. I'm panicking, telling Kaufman, oh, my gosh, we're late. We're going to get punished. We're going to get thrown out of school. We're here already. Let's have a good time. So, <laughs> so we go into the woods, and we stay in the woods. At 2 o'clock, they realize they're really in trouble. They think we're kidnapped. They call the New York State Troopers, Ramapo Police, State Police, the place is, is, is a helicopter. They're looking for these two Jewish kids missing in Muncie. And they come into the, into the school, and they got German shepherds and smelling dogs, and they're all over my jacket and my briefcase. And the kids, from what I was told, the place was flying. Kids were running around. There's a wolves, and they thought the dogs were wolves, and policemen, and total chaos. I would have been so happy. But I was in the woods. I didn't see it. Anyway, they came with dogs into the woods. I heard them barking. We ran deeper and deeper and deeper. At 4 o'clock, we were missing for four hours. This is a true story. You can check it up all the way back in the Muncie Gazette. Four hours I was missing. So you can imagine in the school, the principals and the teachers and my English teacher, they were beyond themselves thinking that we're kidnapped, that we're dead, that we're who knows what, that, right? And that she was going to close because how could a teacher lose two kids? Where was, where was the Shmira? And they're finished. It's over. They didn't call my parents. They figured school's over at 4.30. If we don't find them at 4.30, why should they be worried a whole day? So they figured, we don't find them at 4.30, we're not going to tell. My parents didn't know anything that was going on. 4 o'clock, 4 o'clock, they found us. The state troopers bring us into school, and one of the, the, one of the people in charge takes me to first grade. He wants to make sure this will never happen again. And now, you have to remember, in those days, we used to all get hit. It's not like today, where you can't get hit. If you get hit, you know, it's the end of the world. So we used to get really smacked around. I think in England they used to do the same thing. Rabbi Rosh Hashiva, we used to get a little patch here, a little patch there once in a while. Oh, you only witnessed it. Okay. Okay. You what? You found out. Uh, I hear you. Okay. All right. You'll tell us some of the stories you told in third grade. But anyway, I didn't. I witnessed it also, except I witnessed it. You know, my. Uh, I remember being told that we have two therapists in our school: right hand, left hand. <laughs> Sometimes you do double therapy. Sometimes it's one therapist at a time. But anyway, those were the days, and it was fine. Don't feel bad for me. We all got really smacked around. But being that we all got smacked around, it didn't bother us because everybody got smacked around. In fact, the one boy in my class that didn't get smacked around, we smacked around, right? It's like, you're a goody-goody. You didn't get slapped today? We slapped him. It turned into a game. I remember we used to put Vaseline on our hand. The Rebbe would hit us with a, with a, with a ruler. would slatter all over his shirt. We'd, it, 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 it was a, it was a, it was a gansa It was a mice. 
But it wasn't like today, abuse. We didn't look at it as kids, we didn't look at it as abuse. But what I went through was a little bit of abuse. And um, so they took me to first grade and they said, this is what happens to a boy who runs away from yeshiva. Whack! One side of my face. Whack! The other side of my face. I'm a third grader. I'm a little teeny guy. Right? Then he took me to second grade. He said, this is what happens to a boy who runs away from school. Whack, whack, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. I got smacked 16 times. My face was swollen. I could hardly breathe. I was like, it was like a beating like I never took in my life. Now, the women back here, you can't see them. They're crying. <laughs> they're like, that poor little boy. I can, feel, I can feel his pain. Now, the guys in this room, ladies, they're thinking, why don't they have a high school? They could have hit him in ninth, and tenth, and twelfth. How about base Medrash, Kailal? Well, you know, no, he didn't get enough. You know, he's still standing. Fifty years later, they didn't hit him hard enough. But okay, it's different. Women and men are different. What can I tell you? So, the kind of kid that I was on my way back. He's taking me now. He's going to throw me on yeshiva, right? On top of everything else, on my way back to the office, I looked up at him and I said, "What?" What, why couldn't you just call an assembly of the whole school and hit me twice? <laughs> right? That's what I said. And he said, Mechutzuf! And he whacked me again. And when I, whenever I got whacked, Kaufman got whacked. He's like, shut up, Wallerstein. Shut up! Shut up! <laughs> so now you know the secret. You want to be a Rebbe and do what I do? Got to get whacked 16 times. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, so... So there I was, and, and, and I can tell everyone here that 7th and 8th grade was the worst because those guys, you know, they saw this little kid come in there and get smacked. They laughed. There were kids in 7th and 8th grade that laughed while I was getting hit. But if you don't think I looked at every single one of them and memorized who they were, I did. There were 17 boys between 7th and 8th grade that stood there and laughed when I took my beating. And it took me 20 years, and every single one of them is dead. I'm kidding. Hello, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You think Rosh Shiva would let me speak? Come on. He would pay me to speak after that. Calm down, guys. Anyway, so I want to tell you that the slaps, the slaps and the pain of being, of being beat, all that pain, I have totally forgotten. I have totally forgotten, totally Michael. I probably had it coming to me. We really scared these people. They thought they were going to lose their whole yeshiva. It was a little bit out of control, you know, to get beat up like that in third grade. But fine, I'll let that go. But the pain of the embarrassment of, I can't even explain it to you, of knowing before you walked into the class what's coming. It's one thing, we used to get hit, all of a sudden the Rebbe hit you. You didn't know what was coming. But here was planned smacking. I know I knew that I'm going into that room and I'm going to get hit. The embarrassment of standing in front of all those kids in every one of those grades, that I never forgot. That's something that you just don't forget. But those days, you were a trooper, you were a soldier. I took it, went to fourth grade, and fifth grade, and sixth grade, and seventh grade, and eighth grade. And, and I, was, I was coasting along. And then I came to high school. And as I told you last year, in tenth grade, I was caught talking to a girl on my block in Muncie. And one of the big tzaddikim in the school decided to tell the Rosh Hashiva because he was a big tzaddik, not asking me what I was, you know, why were you talking? She would have found out that I was a neighbor, and I just went down to the house to give a message to the mother. She was standing outside. We were neighbors. You're talking 50 years ago. 
you, you talk to your neighbor in, in Muncie, New York. It wasn't such. But he didn't, he didn't, he went to the Shiva and just reported what he reported. And the Shiva called me in and he said, you know, and I told this to you last year, he said, you know what happens to boys who talk to girls? They grow up to be sewer rats, right? And when I was called a sewer rat, which is not your typical little rat that you can get in a trap, sewer rats are like this big with long tails. And I told him, of course, that I can't be honored because I don't know what to do with my tail when I get up to speak. What are you looking at? I don't have one. I'm kidding. It's not, it's not true. It didn't come true. But anyway, that triggered, that triggered, and, and I don't speak about this publicly very much. And I, don't, I hope he stays my son-in-law after this. But anyway, but that triggered in me what happened to me in third grade. Because I was hit by a rabbi in third grade, and a rabbi called me. And I have to tell you that I was a tough kid. I'm a hockey player. Okay, my whole life, since I'm a little boy, since I'm five years old, I had skates on. I got the most penalty minutes in my league, okay? <laughs> so, so I was a hockey player, and I got stitches, and I gave people stitches. I'm a tough guy. I was a tough guy. I walked out of that principal's office after he called me that, and I actually cried. I actually cried. He mamish got to me. I happened to have liked him very much, and by be calling a sewer rat, he just, he just broke me. And I, I, I'm serious. I crying from somebody telling you something like that? But what it did... It triggered all that beating that I took in third grade. So I decided as a 10th grader that I am stepping out of Yiddishkeit. I do not want to have anything to do with a, with a religion that does this to, thir- to, to third graders and a, and a rabbi that tells you you're going to grow up to be a rat. I said, I'm done with this. This whole thing is just it's not real. And I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I was going to go take my yarmulke off, eat chazer, gone, out of here. But I couldn't. And I think it's very important for everyone in this room to know why I couldn't. Because there's, there's something in life that you can't live without for even a millionth of a second. You can live without air and you can live without water. You can live without love. You can be an atheist and live without God. But there's something in life that if you don't have it, you can't live one millionth of a second. And that's time. When your time is up, you cannot live anymore. So the most precious thing that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given us on this world is why we say Moda'ani when we open our eyes every morning is time. And because that's the most precious thing that we have, it's the hardest thing to give to someone else. We can buy them cars and iPads for their bar mitzvahs. We can buy our wives jewelry. It's easy to buy things. But it's not easy to give somebody else time. It's not even easy to give God time. My subject today is not iPhones and phones, maybe it should be, but that war of the Satan, what does he want? Why did he create this? Why doesn't, he, why doesn't he stop? You know, he had MySpace started, people didn't go to MySpace because it had terrible things on it. So he created Facebook and now he's got Snapshot. He doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. He, it's not, nothing's enough. You can send pictures. I don't have to tell you. The guys who know know what I'm talking about. And the picture disappears. And, and, and he doesn't Snapshot, whatever it's called. Snapchat. You're not supposed to, That was just a test to see who knows. Rashivi got it again. You're sending me a check. Okay, excellent. I'm not done. I'm going to find out about every guy in this room by the time we're finished. But anyway, Snapchat, right. It's called Snapchat. And, and, he, does, and he doesn't stop. What does he want? What does he want? What, what does he want? And, and, and if you're not on your phone, and you're not checking your phone, and you're not on your phone the whole time, then you got something in your ears. I'm not, to, I'm, to, I'm not talking to anyone in this yeshiva, of course. I'm talking about the guys, you know, outside yeshiva that are a little bit, you know, you know, 
So, so if not, you have these guys walking around listening to all this, this crazy music, this Goyashi music, right, which is just a bunch of angry people screaming. One of, the girls in my, one of the girls in my high school, right, so I have this high school of girls that went through really, really, really Gehenna, and most of them are not German, most of them are not from, and they're listening to all this rap stuff. And, and, and sometimes I'm like, they're walking by and they're shaking their head, and I'm like, can I, can I hear what you're listening to? You know, because now they have these two things you can share. You know, sometimes you have these two kids walking down, one in each ear. It's crazy. The world is crazy today. So I'm like, so I'm like can I hear what you're And I put it on. I have this guy screaming and yelling absurdities. And I'm like, wow, he's angry. <laughs> right? What are, you, what are you listening to? Like, how, how could some person enjoy that? So Yetzirah, his, his fight, if you want to break it down to what it is, it's time. It's time. Because if you have time, time is relationship. You can't have a relationship without giving someone time. You can't have a relationship with, that, with Hashem, your wife, with yourself. I have to make a kamaycha, Rebbe Akiva said. The, the ultimate relation, the first relationship, is time with yourself. You don't know where you're coming from. You don't know where you're at. And you don't know where you're going. You know why? Because you're busy just looking at the reflection. Oh, he sent me a text. I've sent him back a text. He sent me a text. Me. Who are you? I don't know who I am. I have a cell number. I have an internet address. Right? I don't even know who I am. People, I ask guys, who are you? I don't know. Ask my friends. Ask your friends who you are. Right, because you don't spend any time with yourself. We're very busy. We call it busy with the reflection. What does he think of me? What does she think of me? You know, how many messages did I get today? We wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning. First thing you do is you look at your phone. Right? Even before you go to bed, you look at your phone. Who called me? How important am I? And if nobody called you, then you set your phone to call yourself. Oh, two messages. Right? I know guys, they leave messages on their phone. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, don't forget to do this, and don't forget to do that, and don't forget that. No, they, they, they're not really leaving messages to remember what they're doing. They need someone to talk to, so they're talking to themselves. They wake up in the morning, wow, I got three messages. Who'd you get them from? Myself. Wow, that's amazing. So our whole world is about, right, you, you're walking around the whole time, looking at your phone, looking at your phone. Who called me? Who didn't call me, right? Because Baruch didn't have to create us upstanding. We could have been behemoths with four feet, because our head's down anyway all the time. We were created to stand up straight. Look, walk in the street. Everybody's bent over looking at their phone. 10% of all people in emergency rooms in New York, not in New York, in America, they say, are from cell phones walking into a pole. <laughs> you, know, you know what 10% in emergency rooms? You're talking about thousands of people like, boom, boom, stitches, broken arms, right? Why? Why is that so important? Because we don't know how to have a relationship. Because the only relationship we know how to have is with our phone. When the, when the iPhone first came out, I remember I was in California with one of my Talmidim. iPhone 3, I think it was, or maybe 4. And he's in the car. He had this fancy car. And he's like, Revy, I got an iPhone. I'm like, so? He says, no, there's, there's someone in the iPhone that you can ask questions. I'm like, really? Yeah. Her name is Sari. Sari, is that her name? Just testing. Okay. <laughs> Rabbi, they keep, what's going on here? They keep falling into... Tiri, Tiri, they gave a nice Jewish name. Hello, Tiri. Anyway, so I, I promise you a true story. I'm sitting in the car with him, and he says, you can ask Siri, Siri anything you want. She has all the answers. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. Check it out. He, he's on the he's in his car, so he's on the, he says, Siri, want to get married? Mm, first, we have to get to know each other better. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> You're going to see guys underneath the chuppah marrying an iPhone <laughs> with GPS. 
which never yells at you, talks always softly, right? And no matter what you do wrong, imagine having a wife. No matter what you're doing wrong, recalculating. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. This is where we're going, right? So this was she, So I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, that's pretty crazy. I'm like, um, could, you ask, could you ask her something? He goes, sure, anything, Rebbe. I'm like, ask her if, there's a, if God created the world. Okay, no problem. Hi, did God create the world? Shh, it's waiting, it's waiting, it's thinking, it's waiting, it's thinking, it's waiting. I'm sorry, I don't have that information. I'm like, ask it if there's one God. Is there one God? Shh, I don't have this information. I'm like, you bought an atheist iPhone. (laughs) The creator of Apple... The creator of Apple would not program into the iPhone that there is a Hashem. So who's behind all this? I'm not saying the creator, it's in his head. He will not answer you. Now you're all going to run to your rooms and check it out. Check it out. It will not say that there is a God that created the world, and it will not say that there is a God. It will not. Because this is a Maisa Satan. The whole thing is a Maisa Satan. But what does he want? He wants your time. That's what everyone thinks. He wants to go to bad places. That's on top of it. Because once he has your time, now he's going to tell you how to spend that time. You know who created? It's interesting because like, it, it, it's, it, it's a beautiful medrash. The medrash says, coming up by, in, in Megillus Esther, so, so Eliyar and Nabi went to Moshe Rabbeinu and said to Moshe Rabbeinu, you've got to go in front of Hashem and you have to dive in to break this terrible gzera. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, well, my gzera wasn't broken by getting into Eretz Yisrael because it was written in blood. So check out and see if the gzera was written in blood or if it's written in ink, in dayo. So the other Nabi said, I can't get into the Shekhinah. I don't know how Hashem wrote it. He said, you don't have to go see the Shekhinah. You have to see how the Gzera was written in this world. So go down to Haman and Achashverosh and see how they wrote it. So if you look it up in Mikilas Esther, it says, Lichto, right? What does it say there? La'avdom, to destroy Klai Yisrael. What's the Gzera? To destroy Klai Yisrael. What does it say? Lo badam. La'avdom spells lo badam. So he ran up to Moshe Rabbeinu and he said... It's in, it's in ink. He said, how do you know? He said, I looked at the word. The word says, lo badam, lo avdam. went in, broke the gzera. So we see that the human being, without, subconsciously, when he writes the gzera, doesn't even realize what he's writing. Look at the keyboard on your computer. Anything you want to put into that computer, anything you want to bring into the Sultan's house, push enter. Enter. But there's no key that says exit. It says escape. Why would they write the word escape? I'm not escaping. I'm writing a paper. I'm not escaping. It should say enter. And it should say exit. So whoever created the keyboard, and I don't know who that is, for some reason, subconsciously wrote escape. Which means that once you're in there, you can't leave voluntarily. When a person leaves voluntarily, it's not called an escape. It's when a person goes by force and sneaks his way out, it's called an escape. They wrote the word escape. I didn't. It's not my drasha. They wrote the word escape. They wrote the word web. They wrote the word net. Who gets caught in a net? Things that don't want to be caught. Who gets caught in a web? 
things that are flying through the air that think the air is clear and the spider is smart enough to make a web that the, that the fly doesn't see. And by the time it sees it, it's over. I didn't write net. I didn't write web. I didn't write escape. That's the gezeira. It's the way it was written in this world. And what they want is your time. Because if you don't have time, you don't have time for God, you don't have time for yourself, you don't have time for your wife, and you don't have time for your children. And the most precious thing that everyone in this room has, every second, is the most precious thing that you have. And it's definitely the hardest thing to share. And I do a lot of shalom bias because I have Talmudim that are in their 40s already today. And I do a lot of shalom bias, and it's always the same story in shalom bias. I always let the lady speak first. That's smart. And I'm like, you guys are married 12 years, or 10 years, or 20 years, or three months. You're coming to me. You're not coming to me to say, hi, Rabbi Wallerstein, we came to celebrate our anniversary with you. People don't do that. Right? There's a problem. What's the problem? And every woman says the same thing. Rabbi Wallerstein, he doesn't love me. Because that's all they want. They want to be loved. And every guy says the same thing. You see? What is she talking about? And I don't know why guys say this, but this is what they say. What do you mean I don't love her? I pay the mortgage. Where does that come from? I don't know. <laughs> and, and all the bills. And, 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 and one guy says, and I just leased her a new car. And, and, and one woman said to me, and Wallstein, he, he, he doesn't get it. My father paid the bills. My father got me a car. I didn't marry him to pay bills and pay the mortgage. I lived, I lived at home. My father did that. So why did you marry me? That's not the reason. Why did you marry me? Well, believe it or not, I wanted to spend some time with you. And every guy reacts the same way. Time? I'm like, guys, this is so easy. You know how to communicate. You know what she wants. Come on. Take her away on vacation for three days. Just the two of you. I'll watch your kids. They'll probably get lost in the woods in Muncie somewhere, but whatever. <laughs> oh, babe, there's going to be a line when I get out here. All the women. Oh, uh, you're watching? We're out of here. Goodbye. So the guy says to me, Rabbi Wallstein, three days? I'm like, yeah, three days. Three days with Sufim? In a row? Three days in a row? Or can we, like, split this up? Like an hour at a time. And I'm like, no, three days with Sufim, and he whips out that iPhone with the, tsh, 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 the calendar. Oh, uh, this was in September this happened, right? Well, the last quarter is my busiest quarter. That's when I do all my business. And then we have, eh, we have Pesach and Purim. I'm like, yeah, but you have an extra month this year. I know, but I need that. I figured that in already. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think towards the end of Sphira, I might be able to do three days. Maybe, maybe. I'm like, you don't get it. You don't get it. She, she needs the time now. And the truth is, it's very hard to give time. It's not an easy thing to give away. But it's by far the most precious thing that a person can give away. How does a person know that you love them? By giving them time. Whether it's a Shashiva and Talmidim, whether it's a husband and wife, whether it's a father and children, whether it's friends, it doesn't make a difference. Whether it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu and us, and that's why Amalek hates us. Do you know why? 
Because it's called Hashkocha Pratis. What does that mean? Hashkocha Pratis means that every second of your life, Hashem is giving you time, He's connected to you. And Amalek says, no. The world happened. Maybe Hashem created, but He left. Hashem doesn't give anyone any time. And it kills Him. Because if Hashem gives us Hashkocha Pratis, that we're connected to Him all the time, that means He loves us so much. Because what is love? Giving us time. And by the way, that's why we have 613 mitzvahs. Not because Hashem wants to give us rules and laws and it's a religion. Nonsense! It's a relationship. So when you tie your shoes in the morning and you've got to put your right shoe on first and tie your left shoe to Goyim, it seems stupid. God cares that you put your right shoe on, Wallerstein, and you tie your left shoe. What does he care? And the answer is, he wants to be with me all the time. So if he gives me a mitzvah of how to tie my shoe and how to put on my shoe, there's a connection right there. And when I come out of the bathroom to make an ashiyotzah, and when I eat fruit to make a bracha, and if I'm in the field, peya, shikha, if I'm in business, ribis, everything that I do, I'm wearing tzitzes. He wants to be in my life because spending time is love. In a relationship, comes the Eight Sahara and says, I will take every Jew's time. He will be busy with a machine that has no bracha on it, that has no kedusha on it. Right? I, 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 These the, the, the people davening with phones, you should know that has no kedusha whatsoever. You can take your phone into the bathroom. You can drop your phone, you don't have to kiss it. There's a certain kedusha in a sitter. You can't take a sitter into a bathroom. You can't drop a sitter. There's a kedusha in the ice ice in a sitter. In a cell phone, there's zero Kedusha. Zero Kedusha. It is not connected to Hashem in any way. There's no bracha to connect the cell phone to a Kedush Baruch So his weapon of choice is to steal and grab all our time. And that was why I couldn't step off the derech. Because my father, all of a shalom, whose yard site I am here for, which is this Shabbos. There was one thing he gave his kids, and that was all his time. My father was a traveling salesman. He used to leave New York on Sunday and get back on Friday. He drove three days to Florida to take the orders that he had to bring back from Florida. He delivered it. He drove a whole week. Cars didn't go 80 miles an hour in those days. The only food I remember that he used to have was tom-toms and rokeach split pea soup. Don't ask me. Okay? But they didn't have anything in those days. It was a terrible trip. And I used to get off the bus on a Friday afternoon at 2.10. I, this is what I, re- I can remember it like today. And I would get off that bus. My father was home maybe two hours. He just drove to Florida and back. And he was standing on that porch every Friday with a football. Let's go, you and Eliezer, let's go in the back and play. Or a baseball, let's get a game together. His whole life with his children. I walked around knowing the most important thing in my parents' life was me. And that built a bulletproof vest. Because if I know that my parents think I'm the greatest thing that ever happened, then I don't really care what anyone else thinks. And that was my bulletproof vest. And that's why I could not step out as much as I wanted to. I could not do this to a man who I know loved me because he gave me all his time. He had no friends. He went to Florida, he took us. He, wherever he went, he took us. This was his life, was his children. I'm standing here today because of him. Because had he not done that, 
I was out of there in 10th grade. Goodbye. Goodbye. I didn't want anything to do with Yiddishkeit. And then I stuck. I wasn't, I was putting on tefillin, I was davening. I wasn't doing any averis, but I wasn't into it at all. And it came 12th grade, and I made a decision. I don't remember what I heard that made this decision. And I said, what are you doing? You got beat in third grade. This man is calling you a rat. They're going to be right? You're going to let them be right? Do you remember how you felt walking into that room? You're going to let Chinuch go in that direction? That kids are going to be embarrassed and hit and call names? And I remember going over to my friends who I was the last guy in the world that would ever become a Rebbe, and I said to them, I made a decision. I'm going into Chinuch. I remember they were laughing. Right? <laughs> I'm going into Chinuch. They're like, what, last night's hockey game, a puck hit you in the head? Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm going into Chinuch and I'm stopping it. And they're like, what? And I'm like, I'm stopping it. I'm going to have my own yeshiva, and in my school, kids are going to know. You're going to come there, even if you fail a test, no one's going to circle it. No one's going to write it in red. Your report card's not going to look like a black and blue mark, right, with all kinds of... Uh, we're not going to let children be embarrassed. And I went to Pirchen, I went to Jep, and I went to camp, and I started getting into teaching kids. And when I got married, I went into Chinuch. And all, Baruch Hashem, 20, 36 years of Chinuch that I'm teaching, and Ornava, and my, my two seminaries, and my high school, and everything that I'm doing. In Mitzvah Hashem, opening a very special equestrian therapeutic thing for girls who went through a very hard time, through horses. I'm not stopping. And everyone says to me, what are you doing? You have a business, Baruch Hashem. You have a family. You have grandchildren. You have Ornava, the three and a half thousand women in there. Like, what do, you, what do you need? You have a high school. You have two seminaries. Now you want to open a rehab with, with horses? And I'm like, yeah. Eighth grade Rebbe was for the beating I took in first grade. My high school was for the beating I took in second grade. My seminary is my third grade beating. My other seminary is my fourth grade beating. I'm only up to my fifth grade beating right now. I said 100%. 100%. I'm not going to stop because I'm not going to watch kids suffer. Everybody has a choice. We all go through pain, guys. Everybody goes through stuff. Everybody was once called or sewer rat or something worse. Everybody took a beating, not always with hands, but sometimes emotionally. We all go through stuff. And Rav Shimshim Pinka said, we only have two choices. He gave a shir on Bechira, and he said, what's the Bechira of a person? If you're a boy or a girl, it's not your Bechira. If you're a Jew and not a Jew, it's not your Bechira. Who your parents are, that's a big one, right? That's not your Bechira. Who your family and your siblings are, that's not your Bechira. As a kid, where you live, that's not your Bechira. Who are you going to marry, even though Shiduchim and Shatchanim and the system and all that? 40 days before, they, they announce it. Hashem doesn't want us to think that he made the choice, because then, uh, why should I stay married? You want to think you made the choice, but it's, it's, it's announced. So who are you going to marry is announced. Boy, girl, Jew, not Jew. Parents, pretty much your physical body, your DNA. So pretty much everything's in place. So what's your Bechira? Chocolate milk or orange juice? Like, what's your Bechira? A white shirt or a blue shirt? What's your Bechira? So he said something amazing. He said, the only Bechira you have is what do you do? What you do with the things you don't have bechira? Step in, step out. That you are a guy. That those are your parents. Those are your siblings. That you were born in Arizona, not in New York, wherever you come from, and that's your life. You have two choices in life: step in or step out. That's your only two choices. Everything else, pretty much predestined your life. So I always thought to myself: What happens if I didn't have that father? What happens if I would have stepped out? No Yiddishkeit. 
married Chatzoshama guy, non-Jewish children, Chazer, Shreif, totally stepped out. After 120 years, and I, and I do this in my class all the time, I ask this question. After 120 years, I come to Shamayim, and Bezdin Shamayla is sitting there, and they're like, oh, we've been waiting for you. <laughs> Wallerstein. Yeah. No trillin, no tzitzes. Your children are, go- are goyim. Psh. Barbecue! Get ready! <laughs> and, I, and I'd be standing there and I'd be saying, hold on, before you, before you flip the burger, <laughs> before you flip me into Gehenna, I hear there's a mission in Pirkei Avos that I remember learning before 10th grade um, that says that Ayin Roya Bo'edin Shamas, like everything's on tape. So um, how about playing a little video of Stevie Wallerstein in third grade before you flip me into Gehenna. Sure. They put it up. Now, you have to know that in Shemayim, there's no body. So the emotions, it's, it's so scary. The emotions, everything's, that world is the emotional world. By the way, that's a proof of the, of, of the other world that I use with many atheists that, that how do you know that there's a, a Gan Eden and another world and that there's a God and there's spirituality? How do you know that exists? And the answer is that we all live with it every day. It's not, you don't have to believe it. And you live with it because... That's the emotional world. We live in two worlds. We live in a, a physical world, which you can measure, you can see in the three-dimensional, you can take an MRI, and you can take a sonogram. But in the emotional world, I can't see who likes me here and who doesn't. You could smile at me and hate me. The emotional world has no way to measure. There's no measurement for emotions. You can take a sonogram, an MRI, you're not going to see emotions. Emotional, emotional world is not measurable. Why? Because it's not three-dimensional. So we all live, and I deal, I deal with atheists like this. I'm like, you have emotions. So what is that? What world is that? So you're living in a... And not only that, that world is much stronger. God forbid people take their lives, they kill their physical world because of their emotional world. The emotional world is what drives your physical world. Not your physical world drives your emotional world. Right? All emotional relationships end up... 99% of emotional relationships end up physical. Very few physical relationships end up emotional because of the physical relationship. The emotional relationship, much stronger than the physical relationship. So we know there's a whole other world, the emotional world. When a person dies, that part of the world, the world that you can't see, separates from the physical world. It's not such a crazy thought. So, so there, in the next world, you feel the other person's emotion. Rabbi Label Lamb from Muncie, he quoted a Zoya, I, I didn't see it, but he quoted it, and he said that in the next world, what is Gan Eden? When you do someone a Taiva, and inside they feel, wow, what he did for me. In the next world, they take your neshama and they put it in that emotion. And you live in that other person's simcha. He said it's not something you could, you could, you could feel in this world. The simcha of being in someone's real simcha is, is, is unbelievable. It's infinite. He says, but chas if you hurt someone, why? Because you live in his pain. He says, that's the fires of Gehenna. They take you and you live in the emotional person of, of, that you hurt. They put you in there for however how long you have to be in there, and you live in that person's pain, and you can't get out. He's the biggest Gehenna, he says, as Isaiah says. So in the next world, when they're, when they're doing the din, they know my pain. They saw me walking into the room. They saw my heart. They saw my stomach. They saw my pain. And they're sitting there, these three Dayanam, these three Tadikim, and they're watching Wallace get beat. First grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. And they're crying! That a Jewish kid should get beat and hurt so much. And when they finish the video, I'm standing there like, so? Now where are you sending me? And they're like, for sure not Gehenna. You already were in Gehenna. 
but we can't send you to Gan Eden. So you married a guy, and you did all these averas. We can't send you to Gan Eden. So I asked my seminary girls, so where would you send me? And they're like, to Gehenna. <laughs> no, but seriously, I said, where, where would you send me? What would you do if you were the Besden? Look what they did to me in third grade. What do you want from me that I stepped out? I'll tell you. I know where they would send me. They'd put me in a room, maybe this size, by myself. And they would say, here's a video of what you did in life. I would see myself marrying the shiksa and eating treif and all that stuff. And now we're going to show you a video, instead of stepping out in 10th grade, if you would have stepped in 10th grade. And they would have showed me my children and my grandchildren. And they would have showed me Arnava and Ateras Nava, Benochaya, all the eighth grade boys that I held, and everything that I did in my life. And I would sit there. Yes, they would, they would show me Sroli too. And I probably would have gotten up at that point and said, darn, I should have stepped in. <laughs> Just for Srilly alone. It would have been enough. <laughs> and let me tell you, everybody, the biggest Gehenna in the world is to come to the next world and sit in a room and watch what you could have been. And you weren't. The failure to reach potential is tragedy. And that's the yuntif that we're celebrating tonight. That's Tu Bishvat. For Tu Bishvat, like I said last year, when you step outside and you say, Happy New Year! Right? The trees are like, what are you so happy about? I don't have any leaves. I don't have any fruit. I don't have any blossoms. I'm pretty much dead. Come back in the spring and call and say Happy New Year. Why do we celebrate Tu Bishvat in the middle of the winter? And the answer is that the Jewish nation celebrates potential. We don't celebrate fruition. We don't celebrate the product. I'm trying to get that. I spoke by the Gooda Convention about this. It's not the mark on the test. The Mishnah says, lie. Alecha hamalacha ligmar. It's not for you to finish the job. What are you talking about? What kind of religion is that? And the answer is, it's not for you. It's for you to do the hard work. It's up to Hashem to finish the job. It's not up to you to finish the job. You have to do the work. How do we know that we're not product driven? Because machshava kemaisa. If I want to give someone tzedakah, and in the end I'm about to give him tzedakah and he disappears, I don't see him anymore, and the doll's in my hand. In the, in the next world, it's considered like I gave him. What do you mean? The product is, you didn't give him. You didn't give him anything. A machshava is not a product. So why is machshava kemaisa? And the answer is, the potential of a mitzvah was there. You went to, to c- complete the potential. That's your job. That the honey disappeared, that's not, that's not your problem. So we, we are potential driven. In fact, the whole creation is potential driven. It's very, very sad. Look at a baby. Baby is born, it can do nothing. Even though we think it's very cute, it has no prodigious, well, it can do, but what it does, you have to clean up, right? <laughs> so it doesn't have teeth, it doesn't walk, it doesn't talk, and all us silly people, right? My, gra- my, my granddaughter, 
turned over on the bed. My, my, my daughter called me. Kathy, she turned over. The cat's sitting there and saying, like, I did that a long time ago. <laughs> Human beings get excited that you turn over. She's breaking a tooth. There's a tooth coming through. Well, guess what? Animals are born with all their teeth. So we're way behind. I was in a kibbutz many years ago. I saw a horse being born. It was born. It laid there for a second. It jumped up. We got to wait. Pictures. Right? The kid is not even crawling yet. They're just going like this. Oh, my God. She's on all four. Yay. She took her first crawl. Amazing. She's standing, holding on. Wow. Her first step. Amazing. Little cockroach. Gives birth. Right? That little baby cockroach. In one second, it's across the kitchen floor. <laughs> Wah! Wah! It doesn't stand. It doesn't have to crawl. Right? A little cockroach in one second. doesn't have to go through all these steps. A cockroach. And we are human beings, the top of the pyramid. And, and we, all this, we, have to, we, we don't have teeth. We can't crawl. We can't walk. We can't talk. We're, we're born. We can't even see. Cockroaches, they know exactly where the food is. One second, they can see... They can fly. There's a little bug on the bottom, on the bottom, on the bottom. So what, what's the terrence? Why would Hashem do that? Why can a cockroach crawl, see, and do everything? It's ready. Born, ready. Ready to go. Right? All 10,000 of them. Ready to go. <laughs> and we, two years, first word, a little bit slow on the graph, 60%, 20%. Why? And the answer is, the godless boys of being a human being is not after you walk. The excitement is when you can't walk and you have to crawl and you have to stand. Potential, potential, potential. That child is born with zero. Zero. But all the limbs, there's Rat Hashem, all the limbs that it should be able to complete its potential. That is Yiddishkeit. That's the world. That's how Hashem created the human being. And therefore, Tu Bishvat is not when the tree has the apple on it, and the apple's going to, it's it, it's the, it's the end, that's the product. Tu Bishvat is when the sap begins to go into the roots, the beginning, there's nothing happening yet. Just a little sap in the roots of an estric tree. Right? That's, what start, that's what's happening tonight. What's the daven? What's the daven for your estric now? Now? There's nothing on the tree. Right? That's when you daven. The, the, the shashiva knows. When you daven for children, when you're single, then you should have tzaddikim for children. When you're single, you have to start davening. A gondol that I went to asked me how old my daughter was. I said she was 14. He said, start davening for a shidduch. I said, 14? He says that she should get married at 18. Start davening now. So we have to daven now when the tree has no fruit. There's nothing going on because the potential is there. The potential is there. So tomorrow or tonight, when you sit with that fruit on the table, that fruit came from a tree that last year you looked out would have been dead. Would have looked dead. That's the product. We're not celebrating the product. We're celebrating that the tree, the sap is going into the tree. I want to end with a story. And, and, and so that if you, when these guys ask me, so how do I do what you're doing? The answer is, how do you do what I'm doing? You don't give up. And whatever you, whatever you went through in life, instead of stepping out, you step in. You use all the pain and everything that you had to help people who went through the same thing. Because you can't help people. I, I, was, I was invited to a, um, I'll tell you very fast, then I'll, I'll close. I was, in, I was at the height of my speaking and helping. I was invited to go to a rehab where there were six Jewish kids. And 
I was very excited because I was like, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to talk about Hashem, and I'm going to turn them around. You know, you have this high hopes. So I come to this rehab, and I got all my papers and my stories, and, and everything's ready to go. And this big guy comes out. He's going to bring me into the, to the room where the kids are. And he's, he looks at me and goes, so you're the rabbi? I'm like, yep. He goes, you're cool, man. I'm like, I didn't say anything yet. He says, I know, but you don't have a beard. I'm like, well, some people think that's cool. Some people don't think that's cool. He says, so, so when were you born? Weird question. I'm like, okay, it's a, it's a rehab. I don't know. Maybe the guy's still high. I'm not sure. Why, why is he asking me when I'm born? So I said, I was born in 1957. 1957. Oh, my God! I'm like, what? He goes, you were a teenager in the 70s. I'm like, yep. He says, so, so tell me, man. You can tell me, Rabbi. You know, we're all cool here. What kind of drugs did you do, man? I'm like, well. <laughs> I, I didn't name the drugs yet. Hold on. Relax. She says, what, what, what kind of drugs did you do? And I'm like, I'll tell you the truth. I, like, I'm an athlete. And I always had this dream to be a professional hockey player. So. I, I didn't do drugs, and I didn't, I didn't smoke, and I didn't drink, because if you're, if you're a half a, second, half a second slow on the ice, you have a stick going through your head. So it's not, it's not a game where you can slow down because you're smoking or you're drinking. It's how to save my life, I have to say that, because I was, I was at the top of my game, and I didn't do a lot of things that my friends did because I wanted to be the best. And, and in, in hockey, there's, there's, you've got to be very, very focused because everybody wants to take your head off, especially if, especially if you're the Jew on the ice. So I didn't do any of that stuff, but I felt like sort of like, you know, this guy's going to be very disappointed. So, so he started naming off all kinds of stuff, which I recognized. Um, and I said, no, I didn't do that. No, I didn't do that. No, I didn't do that. And he starts getting angry, right? He starts really getting angry at me. And he's like, what? You didn't do any of this or any of that? He says, get the blank out of here, man. You think you're going to come in here some rabbi with your stories? You don't understand our pain. You don't understand addiction. You don't understand what we're going through. Get the blank out of here. I'm like, listen, I'll go home. I'll do a bunch of stuff. I'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> so I sort of went upstairs to the administrator. It's a true story. I said, listen, I'm the wrong, I'm the wrong guy. I got a lot of good stories, but I don't, I don't know their pain. You know, I'm, I was addicted to hockey, and... Um, I'm not addicted. To, I, wasn't, I don't know their pain. I, I'm, I'm really the wrong guy. No, we hired you. We gave me a very hard time. You got to go in there. I'm like, I'm not going in there. I'm the wrong guy. I'm really sorry. I'll try to send you someone else. And I left, and I felt very bad because this guy was really angry, and I, really, I walked away without helping any of them. Now, I have a friend that I grew up with that we used to call the chemist. Now, <laughs> the, the, reason, the reason that we called him the chemist you understand by laughing. You understand already. He snorted everything. And I, my, I locked up. I had a chemistry set. I had to lock that up. Really, I'm serious. He locked up everything. Nebuch, this poor guy, he, he went through a very tough life. And he was actually in a coma three times in his life. And they didn't have shockers and all that stuff in those days. And for some reason, Hashem just kept bringing him back, kept bringing him back. We were really, really very close. I tried to help him, but I, I could not help him. Anyway, to make a long story short, Baruch Hashem, and he was on some crazy stuff. He, he, he cleaned himself up, and he's my age, and um, he has, Baruch Hashem, a wife and two children. He actually goes to the Dafyomi, and he's very wealthy. 
got this Rolex watch that would like hit the Ezra Snashem from here. Like, huge gold watch, big fat Mercedes. He's very into his clothing. What affected him was that the chitzenius in the world is like very important to him. But you know what? Have chitzenius all you want instead of drugs. It's like, you know? So he's got all the fancy stuff. He's dressed to kill. Here's moose back, whatever's left of it, right, at our age. Right? And, and I called him up and I said, hey, you got to do me a favor. I was just at this rehab. You got to do me a favor. You could talk to these kids. He said, Zach, I'm out of therapy. And when I left therapy, we made up for my therapist never to talk about drugs, never to go back. I'm not the kind of guy that can talk about it because when I talk about it, it might lead me back into it. I am not going. I'm like, now you listen to me. God brought you back three times. You were supposed to be dead. Like, like Mordechai said to Esther, he got to, to this moment, maybe Hashem, you know, and of course, guilty conscience. That's how we work with guys, right? And I'm like, you need to go talk to these kids. No, he went back and forth. I said, give me a half an hour. I'm asking you just a half an hour. I couldn't go. Just go for a half an hour. I don't know what to say. I'm like, you don't have to say nothing. Wax up the Mercedes. Make sure you got that watch on. Make sure you got the tie and the shoes. He's got these pointy shoes. My gosh. It's like, it's like you can pick your teeth with them. They're so sharp. It's like, I'm like, just go in there. Take a picture of your wife and your kids. Put it down there. Don't say nothing. They just need to see, to see that you're successful. I'm giving you a half an hour. I promise you that's all I'm giving you. If you ever, I will never do this again for you. I'm like, just, I'll ask you one time. Fine. He goes, he calls me up. He tells me the story. He goes, same guy meets him. So what do you, how old are you? Born in 1957. He goes, so what did you do? He's like. <laughs> and my friend starts telling him. The guy said, did you do heroin? You did. He said, what? By itself? No. Cocktails. I mixed this and I mixed that. Ms. Sugar, I gave them an education on how to do new drugs. My friend. My friend, right? Anyway, he told me the guy was backing down the hall. God is here. God is here. The guru of drugs. He never heard someone do so much drugs. And he runs into the room. He says, oh, my God. You got to meet him. He did stuff we never dreamt of. And they're all crowded around him. Five and a half hours. He was there. And two of the boys that were there today worked for him. They're clean, and they work for him. I could not do that. I did not go through what he went through. I did not go through his pain. So I cannot step into drug rehab. But he can. And his whole life has changed since that meeting. Because what you go through, sometimes it's not your choice. Most of the time it's not your choice. But what you do with it, that's your potential. That's why you went through it. What you do with it is what you're going to have to answer in the next world. That's too bishvat. You're going to look at a fruit that came from a tree that once upon a time was a dry little seed in the ground. And if you would have looked at the seed, you would have never dreamt that from that seed would come an apple tree with hundreds of apples that fell into the ground and more apples and more apples. And all of a sudden there's an orchard. There was a Muncie orchard. Miles and miles and miles and miles of apple trees because one seed that looked like it had no potential, it's a little thing in your hand that's a dry... Oh, eat an apple. Look at the seed. What's the potential? Nothing. Nothing. Right? It's called... It's called... It's called... In Kabbalah. A field of apple trees. Because the apple tree has, has an unbelievable potential. It's a little seed. Look what happens to that little seed. Well, every one of us, when we came into this world, 
there's an neshama that has a crazy, crazy potential. And that's all you have to answer for. That's your Bechira. You're going to step in, you're going to step out. You're going to have a hundred excuses to step out. I promise you. A hundred excuses to step out. But at the end of the day, it's your Bechira if tu bishvat higiyah. If you're going to step in, you're going to step out, that is your Bechira. But if you want your children to step in, then give them time. Because at the end of the day, that's what saved my life. What saved my life is the yard site that I'm about to have for my father this Shabbos. He's the one that is the reason that I'm standing here today. Because otherwise, he would never know my name. Surely would never know who I am. And Bacha would not be my daughter. And I would be watching a movie, a tragic, tragic movie in the next world. I walked in here before I spoke today. And I said to Hashem, I, need to, I want to speak to them what they need to hear, not what I need to say. If you look at my, at my paper, you'll see bottle of wine. I didn't tell you that story. Story of the seeds. I didn't tell you that story. Eyes. I didn't tell you that story. Father Giuseppe. I didn't tell you that story. Stairway in the elevator. I didn't tell you that story. Pretty much didn't tell you anything that was on my paper. Because you had to hear something that I wasn't prepared to say. So somebody had to hear. Maybe I had to hear it myself. So I want to end with this because I don't want to be just an entertainer and a storyteller. We'll end with this. I know it's very late, but this is the, this is the closer. So whoever's heard my shirt, maybe I've heard this, but I think this is one of the greatest stories I've ever heard in my life. It was actually told to me by a Talmud, one of my students who, Baruch Hashem, has followed in my ways, and he's a Rebbe half a day, and he's a lawyer half a day. And this is the story that he told me. He said he was in law school, and he had a professor that told him the following story. There was a, a very famous politician and he was accused of murdering a 17-year-old girl. And the court case began. And he hired a lawyer that got $5 million retainer up front. This was a lawyer in the United States that never, like OJ's law, never, ever lost a case. So this rich politician hired the $5 million, he was known, called the $5 million lawyer. Okay. The other lawyer that was against him, the prosecutor, was an assistant DA. And the way it works in the DA is it goes by lottery. When it's up to your choice, the case that you... So Nebuchadnezzar, this poor guy who got this case, had just come out of law school, was a young guy, and he's going up against the superstar. It's like Michael Jordan playing against... It's really... It's really being the superstar and Michael Jordan being the assistant DA. Anyway... This guy, this guy has no chance. He has no chance. He just came out of law school. He's himself. He's very scared. Okay, anyway, case begins. I'm going to do it very fast. It's a very long story. I'm going to do it very fast. The case begins, and the, 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 the assistant DA gets up, and he asks the woman on the stand, so did you hear, did you hear the, the girl screaming? Yes, I heard this girl screaming, blood-curling scream from the room. Did you, do you know what time it was when you heard her screaming? And she says, yes, it was 3 o'clock. And he said, how do you know it was 3 o'clock? She says, I looked at my watch. Thank you. Course examine. Defense lawyer, $5 million guy, gets up. He says to her, so it was 3 o'clock. What kind of watch were you wearing? She goes, a Timex. Let it be noted, a Timex is a cheap watch. Nobody's wearing one. I'm sorry. Okay. So anyway, he says, when was the last time you got the Timex checked? I never got it checked. So would you admit that it might have been 301? She goes, yes. Or, two fi- or 259? She goes, yes. He goes, I rest my case. Sits down. Everyone's like, eh. Of course, examine the watch, Right? This goes on for a whole week. The prosecutor is getting stronger, and he realizes the defense lawyer is doing nothing. And he's beginning to, maybe I'll buy a bow tie, <laughs> you know, 
I'm a big lawyer already. And, and the press is going crazy. They're writing that the $5 million lawyer must have had a nervous breakdown. He's making a chayzik. He's not asking any questions. And Nebuch, the poor politician who gave him $5 million retainer, is sitting there like, what is this guy doing to me? I'm, I'm, I'm going to gas chain. They're going to kill me. They're going to put me on the electric chair. Like, what is he doing? Nothing. Case is over after a week. And the judge turns to the prosecuting assistant DA, and he says, summation. So he gets up, strings out his jacket, walks over to the jury. Men and ladies of the jury, you see the accused? He murdered a 17-year-old girl. No tram, no husband, no children, no future. You have to find him guilty of manslaughter, a murder. And it's punishable by death. We can't let men like this get away with what he did. And the jury's all sitting there like, oh, yeah, we're going to fry this guy. We are going to fry this guy. He's sitting there like he owns the world, this rich guy. We're going to teach him a lesson. Okay. The guy sits down. He's like, yes. Feels good about himself. And they call up the $5 million lawyer, and the judge says, summation defense. And he gets up. He says, I'll tell you the truth. You all think I cracked up. You think I had a nervous breakdown. That's not what happened. Before the case started, I got a phone call from the victim. She's in Mexico. Is there a body? We found no body. Do you know why? She ran away from her husband, her, her, her parents. The 17-year-old girl, she was in Mexico. She called me and said that she heard there's a case. Should she come home? And I told her, you better get home because they want to, they want to, the guy I'm defending, they want to put him, they want, they want to put him in the electric chair. So she said she'd be back. And guess what? I got a phone call this morning. She's back. And she's on her way here. It's 2 o'clock. She said she'll be here at 3. Everyone in the courtroom was like, oh, my gosh. The jury's sitting there and saying, we were going to fry an innocent guy. The, the, the assistant DA who thought this would be the biggest case of his life is now going to look like the biggest chayzik that he was prosecuting. The girl's going to walk in, the thing that he was prosecuting. He's going to look so stupid, he'll never get a job the rest of his life. So the judge says, reset, 3 o'clock, everyone back. Fine, everybody gets into the courtroom. The press is waiting, everybody's waiting. 3 o'clock, they're all sitting there. 3.15, 3.20, Everyone's looking at the door in the back, waiting for her to walk in. 3.30, all of a sudden, the door opens, and a woman walks in. Everybody jumps. Oh, it's not her. It's the clerk. They're switching clerks by the judge. Right? Quarter to four. They're all sitting. Four o'clock, an hour. Everyone's looking, waiting. Finally, the judge says to to the defense lawyer, listen, I don't know what game you're playing, summation or contempt. Get up and do summation. Fine. He says, no problem. Brilliant. Godless. Gets up, turns to the jury, he says, is it true or not true that in the United States of America, to find someone guilty, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? Absolutely. Well, is it true or not that for the last hour, members of the jury, you were staring at the door? And when the young lady walked in, that wasn't part of my, I didn't set that up, but when she walked in, you all jumped if you were so sure that my client was guilty, what were you looking at the door for? So if you looked at the door and jumped, that meant that you weren't 100% sure 
that my client murdered the victim. And therefore, it is upon you, according to American law, to find my client not guilty. Brilliant. This is taught in law school. Brilliant. Worth every penny of the $5 million. And the judge turns to the jury and he says, I was looking at the door too. We were all looking at the door and we all jumped. If the prosecutor would have proven it beyond a reasonable doubt, we wouldn't have even bothered looking at the door. So you know what you have to do. Go into the room and you know what you have to find. This guy is hugging his lawyer. He's like, you're brilliant. I'm going to give you a bonus. And the other lawyer is like, he's like so embarrassed. And the press is writing, five million, next time he's worth 10 million. Brilliant, he tricked them all. Jury comes out 25 minutes later. Sit down. Jury person gets up. We, the jury, find the accused guilty. Murder, first degree. Now the place goes crazy. The judge says, you can't, you can't, now you're making a kangaroo court. I mean, everyone saw, you know, he was right, right. And they're going back and forth. Everyone's going crazy. And the judge like, order in the court. Everyone sit down. And he says to the jury person, how could you find him guilty? It is true what the, what the lawyer said. We were all looking at the door. And she said, it really wasn't my decision. This young lady will, will answer. This girl gets up. And she says to the judge, your honor, while everybody was looking, at the door, I was watching the accused. And from 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock, he never turned around to look at the door. And when the door opened and the clerk walked in, he didn't even turn around to see if it was the victim. Do you know why? Because he's the only person in this room that knew 100% sure that she wasn't coming through that door. And the only way he could know that, because he murdered her. Guilty! Murder, first degree. And this lawyer, the $5 million lawyer, runs up to his client, picks him up by the shirt and says, You idiot! If you would have turned around for one second, you would have been a free man. Why didn't you turn around? And the teacher, the professor in law school says to the students, always coach your client. Tell them what you're going to do. That was the name of the class, coach your client. And when this, Mike Talmud told me this story, it rocked me. And I'll tell you why it rocked me. Because I give a lot of speeches. And I've heard a lot of speeches. And you can have the best Rosh Hashiva, and you do, That, that's my grandchildren's tuition. <laughs> you could have the best Rosh Hashiva and the best Rabbeim and the best speakers in the whole world. But, but, no. but if you don't change yourself, if you walk out of this room today and there's no change in you, if you walk out of a shear and there's no change by learning Gemara, by going to a Musa Seder, you walk out and there's no change, you are guilty. 
Because you didn't turn around to look at the door, that means that you don't believe what you're learning. You can have the best lawyer in the world with the best story, but if the client doesn't turn around, if you don't make changes in yourself, then it's just a story. Then you really think that you're dead. You don't believe in potential. You don't believe in Tu Bishvat. You don't believe a word that I said. Unless you look at that door, unless you change and look inside yourself, you're guilty. And if we all do look inside ourselves, and we all do make changes, then the next time we look at the door, the Shiach will walk through. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.